Another filler episode, a little bit better than last time. This one brought to us by the Reeve Stevens team, directed by Mark, Mike Bahar. This is a super bottle episode. This might be one of the most bottle episodes we've seen to date. There are no significant special effects, no sets, and no guest stars. It is entirely the main cast, the main sets, the main crew, with no, you know, action shots or... You know, they have to blur through the thing, or they go, lightning shooting out of their hands, because that's a thing on Star Trek. None of that. This might be one of the cheaper episodes. Uh, actually, I'm going to take that back. This might be the cheapest episode in all of Enterprise, and one of the cheapest episodes in Trek to produce. Now, again, that makes sense. The fact that they were penny-pinching this much really shows you how much the budget was hurting this season, but also highlights another thing. Limited budget does limit what you can do. Period. Like that, that's just a rule. It's a ceiling, right? No matter what, you, you just can't go above that ceiling. And this is a problem that Trek has run into so many times in its life. Season two and three of TOS, season one of TNG, much of the later seasons of DS9, several of the later seasons of Voyager, and the last two seasons of Enterprise. All of these shows have had this budget problem. In fact, Several of the movies had this exact same problem, too. Star Trek II's budget is laughable by comparison to the motion picture, and there are other examples of that as well in the movies. Nevertheless, what I like about this is it kind of pulls the Twilight Zone effect into it. I know that I shouldn't call it that because that could mean like 50 different things, but what I mean by that is science fiction doesn't have to involve special effects, monsters, ships, or ray guns. It can involve ideas and concepts and the presentation thereof. It is possible to produce very cheap science fiction. Um, oh no, I can't think of the name of it. There's a movie. I've actually done a, a rumination on it. It's a time travel movie that I've done a rumination on. And I don't remember the name of it. It's very, very low budget though. Like, like extremely cheap. Because as long as you are very careful with how you script and how you showcase... You don't need those special effects. Now, obviously, those special effects serve their purpose. If you've been watching this show, you may or may not have watched my mainline movie ruminations. And if you have, you may or may not have seen my rumination on Star Wars... Uh, not Rebels. Uh, Rogue One. Excuse me. Rogue One. The reason I bring that up is I spent a good 5 or 6 or 8 or 20 to 35 minutes... It was probably about 7 minutes... Just talking about presentation value and how important and how impactful that can be. This is my point. All budget and no budget are kind of the ideals, as weird as that may sound. And once again, is kind of how I would construct a... what? Oh, sorry, I just get it. Hey, it's going to rain tonight. Thanks, phone. Is, is one of the ways that I would run a show. Really pull back the budget on some episodes, so you can really spend the budget on the other ones. Get those guest stars in. Get those uh, location shots in. Shoots in. Excuse me. Get the special effects so the battles actually feel as awesome and cool as they need to feel. So that we have those Rogue One moments and we have those Twilight Zone moments. Make sense? So this episode is actually quite brilliant. And credit to the Reeve St uh, Stevens team for coming up with something like this. Now... 
first thing we see is something that works perfectly well for people who are familiar with Star Trek. Once again, we see that Season 4 is very definitely aimed for people who have already been watching Star Trek in general, and Enterprise in particular. We have Travis and Reed, who are both playing chess and calling it simple and, you know, normal, because... It only has 10 to the 123rd power possible moves and permutations. I'm going to break that down a little bit. Put a 10, then write 123 zeros after it. Hang on. Uh, this is probably about 70 or so. <laughs> that is insane. That is an absolutely monstrumentally huge amount of stuff. Now I know, that's the point. They're trying to emphasize just how advanced the Organians are. Sure. <laughs> um, but this is where the brilliance of the premise comes in. You have the same actors playing new characters rather than guest stars. And this is why I'm okay with the usage of the energy beings here. Because it allows for this premise, which is a fascinating concept. Um, and of course they insist we must inter, we must observe Without interference. But someone always dies? Yes. Someone always dies. Your move. I want to comment on that briefly. There's two of these energy beings. I'm just going to go ahead and call them Organians. They don't reveal that they're Organians until very far into the episode. It's like one of the last... I think it's actually literally the second or third to last scene is when they reveal that they are Organians. But there's Organian newbie... That's the one who usually inhabits Travis. You can always tell which one's which. That's also a good, uh, ex good example of how the acting, directing, and writing distinguishes the two just based on how they present themselves. But there's the one who's new, and there's the one who's the protocol person. That's the one in Reed in this case. The one in Reed clearly showcases how villainous he is here. And I'm going to use that word very distinctly, because what he is showcasing is a total lack of empathy, a total lack of compassion. I was reminded of something else very strongly in the way he could act, not just in this scene with his your move, but in almost every other scene where he interacts with some other member of the crew. The near, the, the sheer casualness with which he discusses horrific things in death reminded me of Malik. You know, the augment who was a freaking sociopath who liked sadistically torturing people. And I have no problem making that comparison, to be blunt. Now, this then leads to uh, why the episode isn't actually that great. It's a great premise. I gush about it, and it's a brilliant move. But this episode kind of sucks. Um, so, first of all, you're going down to a junk planet and investigating it with no protective armor and no hazard suits and no scans and no nothing. You're just going to dig around in the in the, the junk with with your clothes. What? You're kidding me. This is your fourth year being out here in space. And, and you, really? They don't even explain why they're exactly here. I mean, they know that's a Klingon thing, but that's it. Okay, that's, uh, sure. This then leads to the coughing thing. I'm going to segue for just a second here. So the first sign of the d disease is, or the virus, excuse me, is coughing. The reason why it's coughing is because this is fiction. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, well, yeah, most... You know, if you're sick in fiction, what you do is you cough. That's how you show it. Unless you're in Star Trek and then you've got uh, forehead veins. That, that's the sign that you're dead right there. But I bring this up because this is actually an interesting problem. How many times have you been very sick in your life? 
you don't actually have to answer, but like, just think of a few times, right? I can think of a few. Now, how, for how many of those were you coughing? Now, let's up the ante here a little bit. For how many of those were you physically showing the sheer level of disability or pain that you were in? There's this one time where I effectively couldn't move my neck. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into it, but I couldn't move my neck. And so I would go out and I would just do this because I, I was physically incapable. Like the, the muscles just wouldn't work. So, you know, I just kind of get used to this. It was very painful just moving around, but I still needed to go and get stuff done and go to work and all that because I guess that's life. And, um, nobody who didn't know what was going on already knew I was in any pain because there was no sign of it. It got to the point where I started to get a little bit irritable at how many people were like, hey, you know, what's what's wrong with you? Or there's something off with you? So I, I actually bought a neck brace that did nothing and accomplished nothing. But now that I had this thing, this clear medical thing around my neck, people would have a visual sign of, oh, there's something wrong with him. And would therefore be able to react appropriately and be like, ah, something wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. You know. And all of a sudden the interactions were less ir- irritating because there was a sign of the illness. <laughs> That's why people use coughing in fiction. Because coughing is obvious. You can see it. You can hear it. And it changes the way the person interacts in, ter- in terms of talking and in terms of their body language. It is a nice, big, glaring, neon obvious sign that this person are sick. Just wanted to comment on that because it's funny how often they lean on this. I can name other times. There's this one time I was ridiculously sick and there was no sign whatsoever. I could move my neck around. I was actually literally dying. Some of you know about this. This was the initial kidney issues I was having. Now, anybody who's paying attention could tell how much pain I was in because it was difficult for me to function. But other than that, there was no physical sign whatsoever of the fact that I was in debilitating, literally life-threatening pain. You know, I should have just started coughing, cough, cough. Anyways, so <clears throat> this thing, uh, they, so they come up and they go through decon, which is nice. I figured they just come in and start licking each other. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't get over the fact that they didn't have a freaking suit on when they went down, but whatever. So this turns out, uh, th- this leads to the Organians who try to interrogate people, and they really suck at that. You'd think for these all-powerful beings, amoeba comparison, they would actually be able to do that, but no. This then leads to a bit of a story about Hoshi, who used to run a poker club and ended up getting pissed off at a certain situation and breaking a guy's arm and actually getting effectively drummed out of Starfleet, but was allowed in under probation because they needed her that much for Broken Bow. Huh. That's actually kind of cool. I wish we'd heard about that or anything related to that involving her or her story sometime in the last four years. I know it's actually closer to three and a half years. Forgive me for being exaggerative. But really? I mean, better late than never. But this is when you're going to start actually adding characterization to Hoshi now? Okay, whatever. At least we're getting something. We get the impression that she's, you know, um, more than capable. Honestly, she reminds me of Eris over in FF7. She's this demure-looking woman who's relatively small and petite in terms of physical stature and almost always stays over in the corners quiet, but has absolutely no problem just kind of (laughs) her way through whatever happens to be in her path whenever she actually needs to. 
you know, the breaking the guy's arm is a perfect example of that the her breaking out of the chamber and then deciding to get out because she had she was effectively in a feverish dream state and had to tell them before it was too late, you know, tell the people back on Earth. Because that just makes sense. We just need to get out to the airlock so I can tell them. I mean, it's just, it's just logical, right? Because that's how we get when we get particularly feverish. We, we latch on to a single thought, even when that thought doesn't make sense. And the brain just kind of makes the mess of the world a, 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 uh, attuned to that thought, even when there's no logic there, right? It's kind of messed up to see. That's even more messed up to be in that moment. I've actually been like that a couple of times in my life. It's one of the reasons I don't like being out of control of my own mind. You know, why I don't drink a lot or I don't do drugs or anything like that. Because I didn't like that sensation. <laughs> oh, thank you. <clears throat> Anyways. So then we find out that the virus is silicon-based. I could be misremembering. Wasn't the Andromeda strain silicon-based? I just, you know, anyways. I found myself wondering why this thing is even doing anything to their bodies. I mean, I know they can't fight it off, but what is it? How did it infect them? I suppose that that makes a degree of sense that a lot of the really, since a lot of the really dangerous viruses in real life are not actually human viruses. They just happen to be in humans and that they are not supposed to be. And that causes all kinds of horrible problems. So this virus is probably not supposed to be in these people. And so it's causing all these problems. I guess that actually makes a degree of sense. Hmm. Anyways, we then have a really nice, surprisingly flat scene between Archer and Tucker. Just the two of them acknowledging the reality of this. More on that in a minute. Meanwhile, they decide to inhabit more people, which increases risk of interference, but, you know, leads to the possibility of more information. We also find out um, that they have a whole selection process when it comes to who they have inhabit initially. Gives me an idea for a video game, as a lot of Trek does. Imagine a game where you've got a scenario, and it's a ship, or a station, or a Apartment building, it, it almost doesn't matter where, it just has to be a location that's relatively self-contained, that has a bunch of people in it, right? And the way it works is you go through there, and imagine you get like a dossier of all of the characters within this confined state. You have to pick one of those, and when you do, you inhabit them. And you have to kind of keep up the facade of being that person, right? But this isn't a full-on it situation. The point is that you are there to observe and learn probably some kind of a detective sort of a game where you're trying to deduce what's going on or, you know, solve a crime or maybe you're in some kind of espionage. You're trying to get some kind of documents. You can do a lot of different types of scenarios with this overall gameplay structure. The thing is, though, you have to be very careful about who you select to initially inhabit. And there's probably going to be some guesswork about that. And you have to maintain the facade. And for the sake of the gameplay, you probably can't hop after you've already taken over someone. At least not without some kind of detriment. Or maybe, like, there's a toggle as far as difficulty giving you X number of free hops before people start to notice. Just just random ideas, and I should totally make that a game someday. Anyways. <clears throat> so, they still stuck it, suck at interrogating. These, these people, I swear. This then leads to... Um, a quick showcase. This is one of the, the better scenes in the episode, in my opinion. Because there's, there's this bit where they're like, well, let's go ahead and swap. And then they swap over to a new, you know, they, they are in T'Pol and Archer. And then they swap back up to the bridge. The camera just starts on T'Pol and Archer, goes up to the bridge, and then Travis and Malcolm just kind of sit up slightly differently, look at each other, and they're like, okay. And then it cuts back immediately to T'Pol and Archer, who just continue their conversation. Or sorry, sorry, I keep saying T'Pol and Archer. It's actually T'Pol and Phlox, excuse me. It cuts back down to T'Pol and Phlox, who just continue on their conversation as if nothing has happened. 
Thus, we see through visual presentation exactly what kind of powers the Organians are using and how their body hopping works. To go back to the game idea, maybe you have X number of, you know, memory wipes to, to be able to body hop. And again, maybe how many you get could be based on difficulty. Just food for thought. So we find out that the Klingons didn't plead for mercy. Why would they? And Hoshi hallucinates and starts to get out. I already talked about the fever thing. I do wonder how Hoshi manages to mega super reprogram her way through the ship, but I'm not going to question that. Let's just move on. And then Tucker hesitates before he injects himself with the thing. Now, it's the, the best part about this is this is one of those horrifying science fiction thoughts. Will I wake up again? Now, you could argue we have those kind of thoughts in real life, but not in the same way. Usually this is something more along the lines of cryosleep. I've actually brought that up before, you know, going down, will you get back out of the cryotube, right? Because it could be a long time, especially in science fiction, until you get out of that thing. So, yeah, appropriately horrifying. Anywho, so this then leads to them being like, they haven't really, we argue, 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 they haven't shown any signs of intelligence. I get what the point is here. The Organians are A, detached, and B, trying to look for signs of another species like them. They're not looking for intelligence. They're not looking for species that are interesting. They're looking for species that are similar. They want to meet the other energy-based beings out there, likened unto the Q. And the Q look down at the Organians and are like, (laughs) yeah, sure, go back to your playground. So the Organians are kind of bored. I'm making this up. I don't know why. But the point is, it is clear that they're looking for species like them, who function, think, and operate like they do. And that's why they have this rigorous set of protocols that applies in how they interact with these situations to deduce something is along the same path leading to them, and thus leading to the possibility of a first contact scenario. It is worth noting, they do want a first contact scenario. They just want someone that is uh, worth their time. Elitism, elitism. So, they decide to go talk somewhere undisturbed, which is hysterical, because they then decide to go and hop into Malcolm and Hoshi and just start chatting. And Phlox, of course, is like, whoa! What? I What? Of course, then uh, Archer and T'Pol, this time it actually is Archer and T'Pol, walk into Phlox's office, and, and Phlox figures it out within seconds. Props to Phlox. He then... discusses things with them, which leads to him being disgusted by them. Something about that amuses me tremendously, that Phlox is so upset about this. This is not the first time Phlox has been livid at what he perceives as a violation of medical ethics and the obligation to help, which has always amused me because of Dear Doctor. Anyways, this then leads to the first of the sure moments. Turns out in 800 years and however many species, we don't get many named. They they name drop the Klingons and the Cardassians and that's it. Although, by the way, if the Cardassians are out here, they are way out of their home territory. That's it's a bit uh, eastward. Uh, inward spiral, I guess. Whatever. It's, it's galactic east from where they are. Way out of d- position. But anyways... No one has ever in desperation been willing to expose themselves in order to try and save one of their crew members. No one in 800 years. Sure. This also leads to an interesting implication. They have been using this site and this virus for 800 years as in, in this method to test people and to observe people. Now, 
I have posited in the past the idea that they actually put the virus there. However, the episode does make it pretty clear that they didn't, and they even seem to use that as their ethical shield of, no, we're, we're, we're not responsible, this is not us. After all, we didn't put this there. This would be happening even without us. All we're doing is watching. And, you know, that leads to the, the younger Organian saying, maybe we should be responsible. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, maybe I'm the only one struggling with the ethics here. You know something is horrifically dangerous, and you know every time someone shows up to interact with it, and you know that it's going to involve deaths, and every time you bother to just watch and be like, all right, let's see here. Okay, they're dead. Yeah, yeah. And they're dead. Oh, they're dead too. Oh, okay. Scribble, 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 scribble. Is it? Is that just me? Am I the only one bothered by that? Real talk. Because I have gone off on the Prime Directive many times in my life. Uh, the effective last time I discussed the Prime Directive was actually over in TNG, although I was wrong because Enterprise and TOS. But you, you get my point. It has come up a few times, and it's only come up in a few ways, and this is the final time we will be discussing the Prime Directive, for realsies, until we get to any new track stuff, which may or may not happen. This is the final PD episode. <laughs> You know my thoughts. I've been talking about this since one of the first episodes of Voyager, which, from your perspective, I believe is something like 11 years ago now. No, 12 years ago, excuse me. From my perspective, it's still about nine years ago. A little over, like, nine and a half at this point. <laughs> Screw the PD as applied. I like the concept, always have. But this is nonsense. And they argue very strongly for it. And what's really funny to me is... The big moral episode, the big moral center of the episode is that the Prime Directive should be violated carefully and precisely under the right circumstances, which, well, that, that sounds awesome. That sounds exactly like something I would accept. But you see how this is a PD episode, really. Ignoring the fact that they flat out state the non-interference thing and directly reference Dear Doctor with the scene with Archer and the two Organians. This is them trying to apply that same mentality in the same way. Now, the last thing I want to mention here is I am curious of your all's thoughts on this one, because uh, I don't know how to say this nicely. I don't mean this in a bad way. But I was very surprised at how many people massively disagreed with me on my opinions of the Prime Directive. Uh, most notably back in, uh, I think it's Homecoming? Back in Season 7 of TNG. The episode with uh, Worf's brother which is the episode that I really went off on the Prime Directive and just absolutely tore it to shreds. Because in my opinion, that is, I'd say, tied for the worst Prime Directive episode in all of Trek. The other one would be the Voyager one uh, in Season 1. I can't remember the name of that one either. But the one... The Time Loop one, right? You're not to warn these people. That's That one. That one. So those two episodes could go to hell, and that interpretation could go to hell, but a lot of people disagreed with me. So, what do you think? As always, legitimately interested... I'm curious of your thoughts and opinions. Either way, this then leads to the weirdness of this episode. Because I mentioned this is a Twilight Zone episode. I found myself thinking, what's the point of this? They're not going to remember this. None of these people are going to die. The episode spends a weirdly large amount of time with this big, dramatic, sad music playing. Kind of generically sad music playing. And shots of the crew members and, oh, she's dead. And Tucker's dead, and Arch is going to be dead, and they're all sad in how they interact with each other. And I found myself thinking, why are they doing this? We know they're not dead. We know they're not going to die. 
And my actual initial knee-jerk thought was, why are you wasting time with this? Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I tend to be rather confident when I speak, for the most part. But that's because I've already had these debates in my head before I open my mouth. I'm sure a lot of you actually know what I mean by that. One of the immediate arguments I started having with myself as I was thinking that thought and writing that note down was, well, how we deal with death is at least as interesting as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? While this is not exactly... My point is, from a threat perspective, no, they're fine. They're going to be fine at the end of the episode, and we know that. And this episode won't really matter for the future, because even though the Organians are prepping for a first contact with humans in the next 5,000 years, it'll actually happen in less than 100. I'm not sure what the Organians will think of that first contact. We don't actually get a lot of exposure to them, since they show up here, there, and then never again. But I digress. Lord knows there were way too many energy-like, god-like aliens in TOS. My goodness, especially in Season 3, but off-topic. Point being, as an examination of the characters and how they actually cope with these kind of situations, it is interesting in its own right. We've already seen how Archer kind of copes with this, so this is more of a reaffirmation for that. He is self-sacrificing, even when he shouldn't be. He makes somewhat incorrect calls because of his desperation not to leave someone behind. Not wrong calls, but incorrect ones. And he has no idea how to comfort or placate people because he himself can't face the reality of it. Meanwhile, Phlox is determined, despite having the intellectual capacity of knowing what's going to happen and how it's dealing, how he's dealing with it. And similarly, T'Pol can barely contain herself because she is so distraught over the situation and is struggling violently. Like, I, I swear I could see Jolene Blair, like, shaking in one of these scenes. Struggling to contain herself. Seeing how they react to the possibility of their comrades dying itself then add something, admittedly, to the episode. And since this is a bottle episode, a cool premise, and has some decent character moments, I'm willing to let it slide. I'm not willing to let slide the fact that they directly referenced Dear Doctor. Never remind me of that episode again. I didn't give it a lamentation status. And that's because I can't give an episode a lamentation for five minutes of a 44-minute episode. But <laughs> those five minutes were a lamentation, is all I'm trying to say. It's also the last five minutes of the episode, a.k.a. the part you're going to remember the most. Probably why most people absolutely despised your doctor. Whatever. So, this then leads to our next sure moment. Apparently, in 800 years, they've never seen compassion of all the species they've interacted with. Sure. But that's okay. Because now Archer's going to leave a beacon, and the Organians lament this, oh, we're never going to be able to use this to study people again, because no one else has ever left a warning beacon over this place in 800 years. Sure. You see what I mean? This is not a terrible episode, but honestly, it's it's one of those just whiplashy episodes because when it's it goes back and forth between hey you hey you ah, and just all over the place. <laughs> I don't know how to process. It is. I mean, I do know how to process. In my own system, this would be multiple pluses, multiple negatives. Not that I'm reviewing these, and that's what this episode feels like. I guess that's all I got. Last filler episode for it, but we do have a, at least one more filler episode coming up. But it's time to get back on track with some arcs. I'm looking forward to the next one. I hope you are too. See you next time.